If you would please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And I'll begin reading in verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for the guidance that it is to our life. Uh, Lord, for the conviction that it brings to our own heart, because when we evaluate our life in light of this word, we recognize things in us that need to change. And I pray, Lord, that we would evaluate correctly today. Help us to help us to see your word and see the things in our life that need to be changed. And then may we do this with honor, with with your glory in mind and your honor in mind. And Lord, may we, may we live a life that is pleasing to you. That is our desire. We do pray that you would bless our time in this word. And may it bless our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been talking about the church. And the beauty of the church is the people. We know it's not the building. We recognize that. The church is made up of people. But it's not just any people, but it's people that God has changed, that God has worked in their life, regenerated them, caused them to be born again. And we use the term saved, saved individuals, saved people. Salvation makes all the difference in the world. You you cannot take worldly people and just build a church from that. No, it has to be God. God is the one who has to build the church. Christ said, I will build my church, and that's what we see Him doing. It's not just an organization. Salvation is what makes the church, makes people different. And that's the main ingredient. When you're building a church, you have to have that ingredient. If you leave that out, then... You will not be a godly New Testament church. You must have saved individuals. Now, you need to keep that in mind. Because it seems like just any group of people today come together and just sing a Christian song, and boy, they're a church. That is just not the case. It's not true. They're not to be set up as the example. That's not what we see in the New Testament. Now, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is explaining some of that. He is pointing out that he was commissioned simply to preach the gospel. And that's what he did. And he went from Colossae to Ephesus to Philippi to Thessalonica. And all he did was preach the gospel. And out of that gospel, out of that presentation of the gospel, this presenting the seed of the gospel, Christ worked in people's heart. He changed people. He regenerated them and raised up. A church, much like you would have vegetation in your garden where there was no vegetation there before, now you have vegetation. Or 
The opposite would be if the squirrels or the, the probably not squirrels, but you have rabbits and the deer at the end of uh, the summer, you have rabbits and deer eat up all your vegetation. And this is just the opposite. You have no vegetation, nothing there, and all of a sudden, Paul plants the seed of the gospel, and you have churches cropping up in all of these little cities. And Paul's visiting this church. He writes a letter to this church after having visited them for a while, and he is he's communicating to them some things that they need to know. Now, I want to put this in the context here, because he is praying for them in verse 14, that's what we recognize. He says, I bow my knee before the Father. He's praying for them. Now, there's a need in this church, and that need is for them to understand what's going on in their life, what God has already done in their life. And he says, I pray. I bow my knee. It's a euphemism for, for prayer. Bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive its name. And this is probably not talking about uh, just... Uh, the earthly family. This is the, the heavenly families uh, because the, the church was all over the place. There was churches everywhere. This is probably talking about the church families. This isn't probably talking about the universal fatherhood of God. He is narrowing it. He's a little bit m- more narrow in his focus in this context. And he's praying for them. And he says, I pray that, that God would grant you, this heavenly father, our heavenly father would grant you according to the riches of his will. I pray that he would give you strength, that he would strengthen you in the inner man. He'll do so with power through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to teach this little church. Now, in the context here, this little church, they didn't have the word of God. The word of God had not been written yet. And Paul sees that need. He sees the need that there has to be more teaching. And remember, Christ said, now, there's much more to to teach you. There's much more that you need to know, but I can't tell you everything right now. He said the Holy Spirit is going to come and He is going to instruct you. And Paul knows that. They don't have the Word of God like we do today. And he knows they they need to, to grow. And so Paul says, I pray that you would be strengthened through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would have to teach them. that has to grow. And Paul himself is the answer to this prayer because he is writing to them and he is laying out... God's thoughts here in the church recognize this is the word of God. This is the word of God. So Paul's prayer is being answered here. But as a result of the Holy Spirit's work in their life and giving word to their lives, they're strengthened in the inner man, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in their heart. When they begin to wash their hearts and to cleanse their own lives, Jesus comes in. He's there, but he is feeling comfortable. He takes up permanent residence in their life. They begin to realize the, the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus begins to feel comfortable and He dwells in their life. And as a result of that, they are grounded in love. They begin to understand what is happening. That's really the heart of Paul's prayer. That they understand, that they comprehend. That Verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints, not just Ephesus, but all the saints, would comprehend, understand. Why is that so important? Because this is concept that's incomprehensible. So that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. He wants you to know it, comprehend it. 
its breadth, its height, its length, its depth. It's so vast, so much bigger. And Paul knows it takes the Word of God, the meditation, to be able to comprehend such incredible thoughts. Verse 19, that you may know the love of Christ. And here's the key, which surpasses knowledge. (laughs) You can't know it. It's, it's, It's beyond us. That's why Paul is praying. I pray that the Lord would allow you to comprehend why. So that you can be filled up with all the fullness of God. You know this. Comprehend what God has done for you. And the love that He has shed toward you. And then it's going to have its effect. And the natural effect, once we understand what God has done for us, that should produce within us appreciation. Shouldn't it? When we begin to understand... I was a sinful person and He did this for me? And that should generate some appreciation in our hearts. And that appreciation then should transfer into power, into motivation, into zeal, into activity and working for Him. But it starts with understanding and it starts with the gospel. The gospel. Paul preached the gospel. They've been changed in their inner man. They receive that gospel. They've been changed by God. And Paul says, now I want you to understand this act of love that God has wrought in your life. And he says, I pray to that end. I pray that you would understand it. It's so vast. It's so big that nobody really can comprehend it. But I pray that somehow the Lord would would cause you to understand this. And this salvation, by the way, was the start of the church. Paul was the first missionary and he began to preach this and churches cropped up and Christ was building his church and it starts with the seed of the gospel. It starts with salvation, being saved. We've been looking at salvation. We've been analyzing. There's 16 different references or elements of our salvation. Three different categories, past, present, and future, but there's 16 different elements. It's that vast. It's that Deep, 16 different elements. So we've been looking at these one word at a time. We've been moving through that. And the real question that this answers is, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? What? And that's what Paul's wanting them to understand. What does it mean that God has wrought His work in our life and caused us to be born again, and all of a sudden we begin to, to flock together. Hey, that happened to me. That happened to me. I, I believe that too. We begin to gather together as a New Testament church, and that's exactly what we see. There's keywords here, and I don't have them on the screen, but you do see them on the little handout that I gave you. We've gone through seven of these so far. Let me just quickly move through them. The first word is election. That God has chosen us. We are unique. He has selected us out. The next word is atonement. That Christ has sacrificed for us. And that brings for us a a sobering tone to our life. The word propitiation. That God's wrath has been turned away from us. And there's a sense of relief from that guilt. The word effectual calling. God has called us. Individually called us. He's wrought a work in our heart. And He invited us. And so we are each one trophies of God's grace. We have our own testimony. Number five, the word regeneration. That God has caused us to be born again. He's given us spiritual life. We have a hunger for God. A hunger for God's Word. A love for God's people. A love for God's Word as well. 
We have the word faith. This supernatural trust in God. You can put us on the cross. You can turn a cross upside down and kill us that way. Or you can burn us at the stake. And yet we trust God. It's a supernatural love. Then we last week we looked at the word repentance. And it's just the ability to recognize sin and to be able to turn away from that sin. And God grants us that ability. It's an amazing thing and that brings a sobering tone uh, to even the church we take sin seriously and this eighth word that we're looking at it today is the word imputation imputation now that's a that's a nice theological term isn't it imputation you can hear a theologian using that term it just means the transfer of benefits or it could be harm from one person to another For example, when Adam sinned, that sin was imputed to Adam's offspring. That was imputed. And all the guilt that goes along with that. We were under God's condemnation because of our father, Adam. But also, for the the good, for our good, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Let me show you the positive aspect of this. Chapter 5, verse 21. He says, I made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now, this is talking about Christ. Christ, he didn't know sin. He, he was not a sinner. He was not like you and I. He was perfect. He lived a perfect, righteous life. He knew no sin. And all of our sin... And this is what it says, was imputed to his life. And then it goes on to say, to be sin on our behalf. So he took on our sin upon his own life, and that's imputation, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, the same was in reverse. He takes all of our sin, and we take all of his righteousness. All of his righteousness. Now, that's an incredible thought. That's an amazing thing. When you think about that, that Christ imputed to us His righteousness. This is not just something that is neutral. This isn't just quitting us of of guilt. No, we stand before Him righteous. We are before Christ, not just a sinner who has been freed, but we stand before before Him righteous. Now, All of Christ's righteousness imputed to our account. All of our sin placed upon Christ. He dies on the cross. That's all done for us. And you say, what did we do to deserve this? And the answer is what? Nothing. We didn't deserve this at all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, turn over there if you would like. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. Another time that this was mentioned, and this was the passage that was read for us, I'm going to read verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. We can't boast before God because we didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. But it's by Him, but by His doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So we take on all of those elements of Christ, His wisdom, His righteousness, His sanctification, His redemption was all placed upon us. And it was done in such a way, in verse 31, that we cannot boast. 
For it is written, he says, just as it is written, uh, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If there's any boasting, it's like we just have to boast upon Christ, what he has done for us. Now, we contributed nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's it. It's all about him. The emphasis is upon his grace in our life. Now, we see grace on a daily basis. People are gracious to us. I remember when we... Um, I moved to Pennsylvania, and uh, we were coming from California. We had left a lot of our uh, furniture in California. We were setting up home, trying to set up house, and we didn't have a whole lot of money. Ruthie's uncle, Uncle Gene, is what we his name, Uncle Gene. He lived in Pennsylvania as well. He uh, lived about 45 minutes away, and he said, "Hey, hang on, I- I'm going to come up, and I'll take you shopping." Uncle Gene is a very gracious man. The Lord has blessed him, and he's very gracious. She said, well, let's go to Walmart. Okay, we'll go to Walmart. And we're just thinking, well, he'll give us a few little things and some trinkets for the home and that kind of thing. We get there, and he says, here, you're going to need a shopping cart. Well, I don't really push shopping carts. They're just not, you know, Ruthie pushes shopping cart, or the kids pushing shopping But he gives me a shopping cart, and he gives Ruthie a shopping cart. And then he takes a shopping cart. So all three of us have shopping carts. And he goes along, we go through every aisle. Oh, you'll need one of these, you'll need one of these. And he just loads these shopping carts up. He comes to the TV section. He says, oh, do you have a TV? I say, well, no, no, we don't have a TV. He says, oh, you need another TV. He says, well, here, just take two. So he puts two TVs in our shopping cart. And we, Uncle Gene, we, we really don't, ah, oh, it's okay, you'll need it, you'll need it. And he buys us stuff that we would just never have bought for ourselves. But he is just being gracious. And when we see on the phone that Uncle Gene is calling, we pick that up. We love Uncle Gene. He's just a great guy. He's just so generous. He's not generous to us. He's generous to a lot of people. He's been so kind to us. And we love him. We love him. We'd do anything for Uncle Gene. He's just so, so gracious. Now, compare that, compare that to what God has done for us. Now, we are appreciative to Uncle Gene. But but really, the bigger thing is we were on death's door. We were sentenced to death and Christ raised His hand and He says, I will take their place. I'll take their place. Now folks, what this generates within the heart of a true believer and what we see within the church is a profound, profound appreciation toward God. The church is made up of people who are who are thankful to God. If you take out that element, you don't have a a New Testament church. You don't have that. We see, we recognize the, the undeservedness. Now that's a new word. I just made that up. The undeservedness of, of what He has done for us. We are humbled at His grace. We are broken. We see His love. We see His kindness and His, His grace on, on our lives. And we realize we have done nothing to deserve it. And that motivates us out of appreciation. We live for Him. We serve Him. There's a zeal to our life. There's a zeal to the church and it's driven just by thankfulness to God of what He has done. But if you don't know that, if you don't know what He has done, then you're not going to be as thankful. We have to understand that. We have to comprehend this love that has been given. Right? Do you see that? That's what Paul is saying here. So the church has to be made up of people who are grateful. That, that motivates us. Let me give you another. Number nine. 
is justification. Justification. Now this is a, a legal term, and I don't want to get too legal on this, but it's justification refers to the act of God whereby God makes sinful people who are undeserving, actually deserving of His wrath, deserving to be just discarded, thrown away, and He makes us acceptable and holy before God. He makes us righteous. That's the term. To be right before God, right standing before God, justified, just as if we had never sinned. Now this again, this is not just a neutral ground here. He's not just freeing us from our guilt, but He's placing upon us righteousness. Righteousness. It was imputed to us. At the, at the moment of salvation, we have all of the righteousness of Christ to the point, folks, that we are called saints. He calls us saints. Now listen, I know my life. And I know some of your lives. And we're not saints. We're not. But He calls us saints. Now, this is God's design. And I think this is marvelous. This is an incredible design. Here's what He does. Here's the design. He, he caused us to be justified now. Now, he could have waited. His design could have been waited. Well, I'm going to wait till they get to heaven, and then we'll justify them, and we'll make things right. But he didn't. He caused us to be in right standing before God now. So we stand before God having no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. And that is done now. That could have been in heaven. He could have waited for that in heaven. Why did he do that? I think it's that sense of security. We can know I am justified. There is no action that God can take because I am in Christ Jesus. He cannot condemn me. I am justified. That brings security to the believer. And that's the key word. Security. When we are secure, then we have confidence. Now, I, I don't know how Christians can handle this idea of not being secure in their salvation. We are eternally secure. If we didn't have that, folks, I would be a mess. I would be a mess. And there's people that, that teach that doctrine that we will never know if we're saved or not. We really can't be secure. The next time we sin, we could be, we, that could be it. And we would be out. But here's the deal. This causes us to be secure. This causes us to, to feel the sense of security because we are just before God. Now let's uh, try to uh, illustrate this. The President of the United States is still the President even if he's not in the Oval Office, right? He's not in the Oval Office sometimes. But he's still the President. Even if he's not in the United States, even if he's in a different country, he's still the President of the United States, right? When he takes, puts his hand on that Bible and takes that oath, he is the president, even before he gets to the Oval Office. Now, that's us. The same could be said for the military, right? You, you go to uh, sign up, you sign on the dotted line, you, you uh, go through the whole process. Even before you get to boot camp, you're in the army. You're in the Air Force. You're in the military. And they own you. There's a sense of security. Once you're in, you're in. I can put it another way. As a mom, you may be away from your children. Somebody else may be babysitting. You may be away from home, but you're still a mom. You understand that. Now, the same can be said for us. Folks, we are righteous before God. Now, that's profound, but we are righteous before You say, well, we're not in heaven yet. We've never seen Him. We haven't 
been to heaven. No, but we are standing before God righteous. And that righteousness cannot be taken away. It's Christ's righteousness that was imputed to our account and we're standing before God justified. Now that's an incredible term. It's a powerful term for us. We stand before the Lord justified. That changes everything because in me there's a sense now that I belong. That I, I can have confidence. And Christ tells us that. We come before Him boldly. Because we are justified. Let me give you another term here. And the word is redemption. Another term for our salvation is just we've been redeemed. We have been redeemed. If you turn back to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us this. Who gave himself, this is Christ, for us. Who gave himself for us. To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. He redeemed us. He, the term is purchased. He, the, the idea is that he, and it refers to some, someone that's been bought back or paid for the price of their freedom of somebody that cannot pay it themselves. They can't pay it themselves. And Christ did that for us. God did that for us. He bought us back from the bondage of sin into a relationship now with Him, with God. And that's, again, it's an incredible thought. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased. We are not our own. God owns us. That's a wonderful thought. You say, well, what in the world can He do with us? We're just sinful people. There's a... Um, illustration of this with uh, we had a car show a few uh, about a month ago we had a car show people brought these old cars you start talking with some of the people and you begin to realize they've essentially replaced every part on that car you say well what was the original well it really is no i just keep putting parts on taking the old parts off putting the parts on and it, and it costs a lot of money to take an old car and turn it into these antique cars that you see is so beautiful now so now i go along the road and i see these old model t trucks or old cars are just sitting inside the word worthless right Worthless. There's no value. To, you can't drive that car anywhere. You can't. Uh, they're, they're so old. Uh, 1920s, 19, even 1950s cars. They, they can't be driven. You have to put a lot of work into that. And somebody will buy that. And they will take that and they will begin to change out the part. Work on the engine. Re, redo that engine. Put some oil in there. Make things work. And replace all the bad parts. And essentially you've got a whole new car there. Now, folks, that's what God has done for us. He has bought us. He has purchased us. You say, what worth is a, a junk car? Absolutely nothing in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. In my hands, I can go and buy a, a Model T, but it would be worthless. I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know how to, to fix that thing up. It would be worthless. But in the hands of God, He creates the value. He creates the value within that Old car. Let me show you another verse. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. Just quickly. First Peter chapter 1 verse 18 says this. 
knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. You weren't redeemed or you weren't bought. You weren't purchased with silver or gold. Those things get, that can perish, he says, verse 19, but with the precious blood as of a, a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the, the blood of Christ. That's the value. We were bought. We were bought. You say, oh, well, we must be, we must be so valuable. Uh, when I was back in the 70s and 80s, when I was in Bible college, there was this idea that, that, that came about that, oh, well, we must be really valuable for God to, for God to purchase us. Woohoo, look at me. Listen, there's no value within us. Our hearts were cold and stony hearts. He, he purchased us because we were owned by Satan. Sin had ravished uh, his control over us. We were worthless. There's no value in us. But this faddish thinking that God had found the pearl of great price. Oh, he's scanning all of the people and, and he says, Oh, I'm going to choose that one. I'm going to choose that one. I'm going to pick that one. They're valuable. No, listen, there is no value. No value. I was not any more valuable than any unsaved person out there. There was no value to our life. He's the one that creates the value to our life. We are not the pearl of great price. Our finding Christ, that's the pearl of great price. And the idea of us deserving God's grace diminishes God's grace. It diminishes it diminishes even the idea of man's sinfulness. Because we are wretched. There is nothing deserving. There is no warrant of God's attention at all. We were deserving of hell. And he should have just cast us into hell at the time. We were enemies of God. Rebelling against God. We were on the side of the, the rebels. We were dead spiritually. We had fallen short of God's glory. There was no fear of God before our eyes, the Bible says. We had no value at all. Our value is only found in Christ when Christ begins to take out that old stony heart and put in a heart of flesh. Sometimes that's what you have to do with the old cars, isn't it? You just have to take, a, and take out that old engine and put a new engine in. And that's what God has done for us. That makes up the New Testament church. If you do not have people that God has purchased and redeemed, then you do not have a New Testament church. And let's just say this, that causes us to be servants. If we're bought, we're bought and paid for, somebody else owns us, God owns us, then, then we are servants of Him. We're His servants. That's what we do. We're just servants of Him. We do what He tells us to do. And then and the church... A genuine church, those whom he purchased, he purchased, and we serve him now. One last, one last term, and that is the term adopted. It was in the song that we sang earlier. We are adopted. We are sons of God. Look at Ephesians. Go back to the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. Adoption. This is a whole other element of salvation that you need to understand. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 says this, 
he predestined us as he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Even before I was born, he had chosen me out and he predestined that he was going to adopt me. And again, not for any value within me. He adopts me. He adopts me. And the term adoption there is is so important. Uh, It's the idea that we are brought into God's family and purchased, bought into God's family and given all of the rights as a son. All of the rights of a son. Another passage is Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. Galatians 4, 6 says this. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your our heart. We have the spirit of sonship. We are sons. We are adopted. And here's, here's our cry. Crying, Abba, Father, Dad, Dad. He has reoriented our life to where we are children and He is our Father. That's a wonderful thought. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Romans 8.15 says this, For you have not been received, you have not received a spirit of slavery. Now we are slaves, don't, don't misunderstand that. It's not slaves to the law. But we have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, not, not to that law we cannot control. But you have been received, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Dad, Dad. That's the idea. We are adopted, folks. And that's a concept, that's an idea that we need to get into our minds. That God has brought His enemies into His most most private and most intimate part of His life. Into His family. Into the family of God. These estranged humans that were fighting Him, He has now made His spiritual family. And He has included us in the inheritance. We get all of the inheritance of the, of the glory of and the riches of, of God, the glory and riches of Christ. Everything that's in Christ, He hasn't left anything out. And therefore, Christians receive all the privileges and all the duties of being a Christian. Now, again, this is not the, the foster care system. He, this isn't just a trying out. Let's, let's just try it out and, and see if you're going to be a good fit for our family. It's not that. He has adopted us in. Some of you are going through the adoption process. Some of you have gone through the adoption process. And that is, that is such a precious thing. You bring that little individual into your home and you love that little individual and you, you give to that person and you allow that person all the free reigns within, within the home. Now what does that cause for the church? How does that apply to us? That causes us to look up, doesn't it? It causes us to to begin to redefine ourselves. It brings to our life, let me give you this word, a sense of dignity. It brings to our life a sense of dignity. Not in the proud sense that, oh, look at me, because we didn't do anything to deserve it. Our boasting is in the Lord, Paul says. In the proud, in the, the dignity sense, in that we know how to live life and we can live life to the glory of God. We have purpose to our life. We look down our nose at sin. <laughs> you know, you say, well, do we still struggle with sin? Absolutely. 
Do we still sin? Yes. But here's the deal. Now we're embarrassed by it. We don't just stay in it. No. And we're children of the King. We're children of the God of the universe. It's embarrassing. We do not do that. There's something undignified about doing that in our life. We live above the culture, folks. We live above the culture. Again, not in some proud way. Not in some way that that causes us to be in some way hypocrites. We don't live in some way this shallow life pretending to be something that we're not. No, we are righteous before God and we living or trying to live up to that standard. That's us. That's the Christian. And when we sin, we admit it, we get it out of the way, but we, we move on. That's not the life that we live. It's not a consistent pattern of our life. It's not something that we do. It's not a place that we live. But but this idea of adoption, it raises our heads. It causes us to look toward heaven. Paul said, keep your mind set on the things above. Look at the things above. Why? Because we have meaning to life. We understand life now. We're not living this superficial life. We're not trying to be hypocritical here, but it's just the reality. It's just the reality of our life that we are God's son. We are God's children. We're not satisfied with sin. We don't wallow around in our sinfulness. We don't just say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm still sinful. God hasn't, uh, God hasn't changed me and God hasn't... No, he is, he might be still, you may be a work in progress, but that is not where we stay. We are now children of God. John says, you can tell, you can tell, he says, who, who are Christians and who are not. That those who are children of the devil are children of the devil. Those who are children of God are children of God. Those who are the, the children of God are, are obvious. Are obvious. Why? Because God's, um, the life that they live is important to them enough that they're living to the glory of God. Living to the glory of God. Uh, folks, if you analyze your own heart, if you evaluate your own heart and you begin to realize, I don't care about the glory of God, then you have to start thinking. Have, have I really been adopted? Have I been changed? If I can just go through life and just wallow in my sin and not really care, you have to think, has the Lord gotten a hold of my heart at all? Am I spiritually alive at all? We set our minds on the thing above. Things above, it's a matter of focus, isn't it? We don't focus on wallowing in the pig pen that we live in. No, we live as though we're sons, children of God. And the church is made up of those who, who are part of God's family. The family of the the God of the universe. We live above the culture, this sinful culture. We live above the the fads of this world. Even the Christian fads of this world many times. Why? Because we're we're in the family of God. And there's something dignified about that. There is. There's something noble. There's something honorable about that. And I'm afraid the Christian world, we're going to stop right there. I'm afraid the Christian world does not, the Christian world, the, the, the world that supposedly is Christian, I don't think they see that. It's too easy for them to just go back to their sin and kind of wallow in their sin. Just go to church on Sunday and you're okay. No, it's not that at all. 
You're children of God, whether you're in the church service or in church or outside the church. You're still Christians. You're still children of God. Adoption. Adoption. We are adopted. That's profound thought, folks. That God would take His enemies, those who who were shaking their fist at Him, angry with Him, no fear of God before their eyes, and He brings us into the most intimate part, His family. You are blessed. We are blessed. If you have been saved, if God has wrought a work in your life, then you are blessed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, may our eyes be open to this fact. May we be able to comprehend the love that you have shown us. In its depth, in its height, in its, its breadth, in its length. May we be able to comprehend it. May our prayer be just like Paul's, that we would, that we would get it. Lord, because I know that would change our life. If we understand what you have done. Lord, we have this word that tells us. That's something different that the church in Ephesus didn't have. They didn't have this word, so Paul had to pray. But now we've got it. And we still, Lord, we still pray, Lord, help us to get it. May we open this word, comprehend what you have done. Lord, thank you for the salvation, this great salvation that you have bestowed upon us. Lord, sometimes we just look at it as a, a ticket to heaven. And that is so shallow. It seems like that's the way the Christian world is looking at it today. Just a ticket to heaven. That's it. It's all I want. As long as I, I'm eternally secure, I'm going to heaven and fine. But Lord, it has implications to our life today. Profound implications. And I pray that we comprehend. May we meditate on these things. May we meditate on your word. Understand, Lord, what you have done. And we pray for Daniel's Bible Church. As it's made up of true, true believers. And I believe that, Lord. I believe that we are genuine believers. But, Lord, sometimes I think we, we just, it's so easy to live a shallow Christian life. Just like the rest of the Christendom. But, Lord, help us, help us to comprehend. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Thank you for your good attention today to, to God's Word. If we can help you in any way, we'd love to be able to do that. Uh, you can fill out the visitor's card. Just make sure you put something on there. You'd like a phone call or like for me to visit. Something like that. That would be fine. We'd love to help you. Even throughout the week, you can stop by. My truck is usually here. You can just uh, stop by and, and talk. These are spiritual things, spiritual matters. We have to evaluate our own life. We are, we are blessed with a great salvation. A great salvation. And we need to meditate on that. We need to comprehend it. We need to understand it. Come to Him. Praise God from who? Bye.